good afternoon or good morning whenever you're listening to this. Before we begin, I'm going to be giving a lot of references, mostly in First and Second Chronicles. And I had told you that, you know, it would be good to give it a, a quick read. But I'd like to encourage you too to, to go through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And and even though mostly today what I'm going to give you is First and Second Chronicles references, uh, it gives you a, a great idea of uh, a lot of the things that we're going to refer to in the next few weeks. Before we begin, let me just pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for your word, your precious word. It's come to mean so much to us, especially in this time that we're going through. Father, I just want to thank you for your salvation. We're reading about David, but oh, David's greater king has come and purchased for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so we thank you. Continue with us not only at this study, but all the other studies that are coming. Give us open ears and open hearts and open eyes. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I hope you have a piece of paper and a pencil. I'm going to give you a lot of these references because in the context that we're studying right now, uh, if we were together in, in the room, we would take time and go through them. But because of the situation we're in and the podcast, I think this is the best way to handle it. The book of Psalms was Israel's hymn book. It contained individual and corporate reasons to praise God within the nation and to declare his glory to the nations. The entire collection was called Sefer Tehillim. That's Hebrew. It means book of praises. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word used was Psalms which really means songs of praise accompanied by a stringed instrument, an instrument played by plucking or twanging of strings. Now, as we read or sing or pray the Psalms, we're going to be in the company of such people as Miriam and Moses, David and Solomon, the Lord Jesus, Peter, Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, not to mention St. Augustine, Luther, and Calvin. So you can see why over these 3,000 years they've been preserved Each generation recognized uh, the Psalms. Not only were they models of appropriate response to God, but that in them we see Jesus. To quote Gerald Wilson, the book of Psalms and the Psalms within it were preserved because they offer those who read, sing, and pray them the opportunity to take their stand within that worldwide historical and eschatological community of faith who seek to live out their lives with all its pain and joy love and hate, fear and hope, before God, who is the source of all life, joy, love and hope, end quote. In the New Testament, in Matthew 26 and 30, Jesus probably sang Psalm 118 before they left the upper room for the Mount of Olives. In Acts 4 and 25, when Peter and John were arrested, the early church prayed the words of Psalm 2. In Ephesians 5 and 18, Paul commands us to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why are the psalms so beloved by so many? They are more than appropriate examples of how we respond to God. They are more than a source of God's guidance. How often in our struggles and trials during dark times have we read a psalm and found that they often said what we felt but couldn't put into words? And how often by thinking on a psalm, the Holy Spirit has encouraged and confronted and even challenged us as we have identified with the writer in his particular emotion. Emotions that run the gamut from loneliness, sorrow, 
love, discouragement, shame, exaltation, fear, peace, gratitude, and confidence. These psalms were written by real people, people facing real situations. A lot of the psalms express praise, and even in times of sorrow, the psalmist turns to praise God. The psalmist knew that God was merciful, wise, righteous, loving, and trustworthy. Most often today, when you and I think of the psalms, what do we often say? That we identify with the psalmist in our private devotional times. We find peace and comfort when we read them. That we can start off reading with a troubled soul and find that at the end, we're at peace. They encourage us as we focus on God. We think of the psalms as private devotional scripture. But let's look at the corporate use of the psalms, the original purpose. We need to go back, way back to their original use. For that, we need to go back to the purpose and use of the psalms. They were for community worship. The psalms were a hymn book filled with hymns, prayers, and poems. They were filled with praises to God. Some of the psalm headings support this. When you have a moment, glance through the psalm headings. Some are instructions to the music director describing the type of composition and the appropriate instruments to use. Some examples, Psalm 6 and 12. The heading is to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith. And I thought, what is a Sheminith? If you look at 1 Chronicles 15, which describes an event, a special event, the ark was being brought to Jerusalem, and there's quite a description of what happens musically. Now, time won't permit the whole description, but David commanded the chief of the Levites to appoint their brothers, and then the list of singers is given. The instruction for the instrumental accompaniment is the harps according to Alamoth and the lyres according to Sheminith. The word Alamoth refers to the treble range. The Sheminith is the tenor or bass. Other instruments were the Gittite harp and the nebel. Now the nebel was a stringed instrument used by ancient Hebrew people. The Greeks called it the Phoenician harp. What kind of instrument the nebel was? Well, it could include the psaltery, the kathara, both of which are strummed instruments like the kinnor. And in 1 Chronicles 23 and 5, when David was old and full of days, he made his son Solomon king over Israel. And what follows was a description of how he assembled all the leaders of Israel and the priests and the Levites. He organized an orchestra of 4,000 to sing praises to the Lord and to play praises. These instruments, David said, he had made for praise. Can you imagine the incredible sound? I remember when I came from Newfoundland. I was about 12 years old, and all I'd ever heard was really country music, country western music. And one of the first trips our class took was to Massey Hall to hear the Toronto Symphony, the first time I'd ever heard an orchestra. And I just sat there in awe and thought, where have you been all my life? And that evoked in me and started a love for, for classical music. Well, some of the psalm titles have directions as to which tune to use. When I was part of a choir, the director would say, we're going to sing the Lord's My Shepherd. And then he would say, to the tune of Crimond. Or there was another tune, St. James Eyre. There was another tune, too. And so it meant when he said a certain tune, we sang... The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie. 
But if the choir director said, we're going to sing the other tune, we'd go, the Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie. And so these tunes had a name. One was Crimmond, the other was St. James Air. And as I say, when you look at some of these uh, psalms, those were tunes. Uh, on some of the psalms, there's titles that are called for instance, according to the gazelle of the dawn. Psalm 56 is according to the dove on far-off terebinths. And Psalm 45, 69, and 90 were all to the tune of lilies. So lily was popular. That was a popular tune. As well, many psalms have headings which are ancient categories of psalms. Mismore, Sir, Maskell, Mictem. Um, a lot of different um, terms, and that means a lyrical poem composed under strong mental emotion, a song of impassioned imagination accompanied with a suitable music. Now, some of the psalm headings were for special occasions. Psalm 100 was for a thanksgiving offering, celebrating divine deliverance from some distress. Psalm 38 and 70 were for a memorial service, and Psalm 30 was for the dedication of the house or temple. There were all types of psalms. We're going to try and cover these different psalms in the next few weeks. There were praise psalms, which appeal to self and to others to praise God. They focus on God's praiseworthy name, his deeds, his power, and they express a deep sense of confidence in his power and authority. There were laments, and these psalms make a direct appeal to God, often recounting how life has turned out so bad and sometimes questioning God's care. There were psalms of thanksgiving. Sometimes these psalms can contain descriptions of the reality of pain and sin and treachery. But what makes these different from a praise or a lament is the confidence reaffirmed in the saving power and grace of God. There are also royal psalms which relate to the king and his political, social, and religious duties. There are the Yahweh Malik psalms, and these are related to the royal psalms because of their emphasis on kingship. But the kingship they refer to is the kingly reign of Yahweh, and they are found in the middle of the fourth book of the Psalter. There are liturgical psalms. Psalm 136 is one where an antiphonal response is to be found. Antiphonal means a short sentence or its musical setting sung and recited and played alternately by two groups. Here is one we have all read together, Psalm 136, where the priest would lead off and perhaps the Levite choir in the congregation would respond. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And after every statement about the Lord, the congregation's response was, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, to read when these words were spoken, you'll need, at your leisure, to turn to Second Chronicles 7, verse 3, where the glory of God comes down and fills the temple. It's quite a thrilling uh, part of Scripture. Then we have an imprecatory psalm in which David calls down God's wrath and judgment on God's enemies. The headings of some of these psalms give the authorship while others give a reference to a historical happening in David's life. These, however, weren't necessarily authored by David, but may well be about David. Another point to make in the original use of the Psalms was the description of the various guilds of temple singers. 
kind of like glee clubs or choirs. And that's found in First and Second Chronicles. They were part of the official worship structure of the temple. And in 24 of the Psalms, these leaders are mentioned. The sons of Korah. Twelve Psalms are ascribed to this Levitical family who were descendants of the rebel leader Korah who died from his rebellion. That story is in Numbers 26 and 10. His children were spared and became temple doorkeepers and guardians of the temple. First Chronicles 9 and 17 is where you'd find that. Now an aside here. When I was looking at that, and this, I'm getting a little off track, but bear with me. I looked at that and thought of what these sons of Korah were doing. And then I thought of that term often that we hear, well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Sometimes we're talking about children who turn out to be not much better than their parents. And yet I'm reminded that God is overall and can bring children who have been under bad influence to himself. And I look at the sons of Korah and I go, look at what they're doing when their father was a rebel. Well, we also have Asaph, Heman, and Ethan, who also directed choirs. And here are some more things that you can look up to give you sort of a, a, an idea of who they were and what they were doing. First Chronicles 6, verse 31, 33, 39, and 44. And also First Chronicles 16, verse 5 and 2 Chronicles 29 and 30. I think it's just good to be able to look at them and then you look at the Psalms and you go, this is where this is all fitting. Well, another Psalm that gives us an insight into how these processions to the house of God would happen, Psalm 42 and 4, the Psalmist says, how I would go and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Now, you know, when I hear this, glad shouts and songs of praise, this was a pretty loud bunch. It, if we happen to feel the urge to say an amen in church, we feel we're almost out of order and slink down after we've done it. But not according to these folks. They were shouting and they had songs of praise. Well, again, in Psalm 68 and 24, here's another description of a procession. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, and so we see a community praising God. Here are some other moments of worship as the congregation joins in praise, lament, and thanksgiving. With my mouth I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great throng I will praise him. Psalm 109 and 30. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 116. Here's another liturgical psalm that reflected praise and thanksgiving and supplication. It's Psalm 24 and 7. Now imagine, if you will, David is bringing the ark to Jerusalem and they approach the gates of the city and there's two choirs and half of the two choirs are without coming up the hill and the others are inside of the gate. 
and the advancing choir summons the gate to open in the grand words, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And the answer comes from the choir within. Who is this King of glory? I should say the question. Who is this King of glory? And the question represents probably ignorance and possible hesitation because before Jerusalem became David's city, the pagan inhabitants there hadn't been conquered yet. But when they were, they knew nothing of the God of Israel, recognized no authority in his name. And then we hear the command again, lift up your heads, O ye gates. And the response, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And so we see that these Psalms give moments of worship. They give us an insight. Well, from Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel, we learn something that happens. The Psalms enjoyed a long history in the temple worship. And how come these compositions intended for communal worship? Now they're thought of as private prayers and used as models for the personal prayer of believers. Something pivotal, something far-reaching, some incredible experience had to have happened to have caused a shift in the use of the Psalms. Two events changed the use of the Psalms. They happened 650 years apart. But the first event was the destruction of the first temple, known as Solomon's Temple. It was leveled in 586 BC by the Babylonian army, and it was followed by the national dislocation of the nation of Israel in the exile. The vast majority of Israelite population was shipped out of their native land to parts of the Babylonian Empire. There, many of them would live out their days. Nothing would ever be the same. There they were in unfamiliar territory, a hostile land, and all they knew had changed. They were cut off from everything that they had. Freedom, family gatherings, their identity as a follower of Yahweh, Everything they had taken for granted was taken from them. The devastating effect that it had on the Israelites can be heard in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And so from Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel, and Esther, we get some glimpses of Israel in captivity, practicing their faith in a hostile environment. We know that during the exile, the synagogue arose as a local center for Jewish political and social connection. It was formed to guard the loss of their identity, and not a lot is known about when the synagogue was formed. But by the time of Jesus in the first century AD, it was a well-established institution with regular Sabbath services. It became the site for the collection and interpretation and preservation of the written text. It shaped the holy writings of, of Hebrew scripture and helped the exiled nations understand what it meant to be faithful followers of their ancestral God, Yahweh. Among these materials that were collected were the Psalms, And in this setting, the remarkable shift happened. If you could no longer sing them in communal worship, you could study them for what Yahweh wished to teach you, and their laments and praises and thanksgivings were reminders of what had been lost and hopeful anticipation of what one day would be restored. 
Seventy years passed, and then the first wave of the exiles returned under Zerubbabel. And then a second wave. We studied Ezra and Nehemiah, and Psalms like 121 and 122 show what they sung on their pilgrimage to the restored Jerusalem temple. And so I just looked at Psalm 121. Uh, They're called Songs of Ascent. 122, the same thing. 122 says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And it goes on. They were joyful. So the Psalms resumed their place as an important part of the communal worship experience. But then a second cataclysmic event occurred. And when the second temple, known as Herod's Temple, was destroyed this time by the Romans in A.D. 70, it meant the temple worship ceased, and the use of the Psalms in this way also ceased. So as we study the Psalms, there are five divisions of these collections. We're just going to move along and just look at how the book is made up. It's composed of five collections. So a quick overview, if you look at your Bible. The first collection is Book 1. Psalm 1 to 41, and then Psalm 42, there's a title separating the Psalms. Then book 2 covers 42 to 72, book 3 covers Psalm 73 to 89, book 4, Psalm 90 to 106, and then book 5, Psalm 107 to the end. They're not in a purely chronological order. For example, when you look at Psalm 3, you're going to see the heading indicating David composed it during Absalom's rebellion while Moses' Psalm 90 is further along in Book 3. Is this just a collection thrown together? Did it, as Gerald Wilson puts it, trickle off the tip of the pen of a single author? We know that isn't true. Well, in between these five books is a doxology. It's typically an expression of praise sung to God. An example of that is, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, or Praise the Lord. Why these doxologies? They mark the conclusion of a group of the Psalms. Why five collections? Well, although David composed many of the Psalms, there were many written long after David died, and in fact some were written from the end of the monarchy to the exile and back. David composed a great number of Psalms in about 1000 BC. From the content, some of the Psalms were composed as much as 500 years later, As we said before, Psalm 137 begins with, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. One interesting thing is that there was an early arrangement of the Psalms before the final edition of the Psalter was made, because Psalm 72, verse 20, ends with this saying, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And yet the Psalter contains a number of Psalms attributed to David after 72. They're placed in Book 5. Why? So whoever was editing the later psalms distributed certain Davidic psalms across the whole five books, but chose to leave the earlier ones alone and intact. It may be that the final editor or editors selected genuinely Davidic psalms whose contents were appropriate for the exile period, though originally penned by David in response to his particular circumstances. We do not know that some person or persons put together the book as we now have it. We don't know who it was. It may have been somebody, possibly a man learned in matters concerning the decrees of the Lord for Israel, a man like Ezra, 
a person or persons returning from the exile who was now preparing people returning from the exile in the proper worship of God. And so, a brief summary of what each book is, and then we'll, as I say, cover different psalms in these books. In book one, which covers 1 to 41, the first two psalms introduce the major themes that permeate the whole book of psalms, the law and the gospel. The first psalm declares the important character of the law of God and the ideal man who loves God's word and lives by it, which we're going to study next week. The second psalm presents the son appointed by the Lord who will ultimately extend the messianic kingdom to the ends of the earth. Psalm 1 and 2 are an introduction to the whole book of Psalms. The Psalms are a book about Christ. Jesus said in Luke 24 and 44, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the rest of the book is about the king, his kingdom, and his people. How does life go for this king? Will there be enemies? And how will God protect? Book 1 We'll see David attempting to establish the Lord's kingdom of righteousness and peace and how he met a multitude of enemies, some of who were his own sons. The rest of Book 1, David's conflict with Saul, confrontation between God's people and their evil foes. It's a them and us as David describes his deepest feelings. The focus is clearly on David's experience as king. Book 2 covers his kingship, communication, even though these enemies struggle to overthrow God's king, the psalmist declares who God is and in some psalms invites the nations to serve the true God and admonishes or warns the nations, all the while praising the Lord for who he is. They are identified in some of the psalms. In Psalm 54, the Ziphites. In Psalm 56, the Philistines. And a good way to think about this section is God rescues his people from their enemies through his king. Book three is the Assyrian crisis, devastation. The Psalms deal with the devastation of God's people by international forces, a turn of events. No longer a king on the throne. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple's been burned. The defeat of God's people at the hands of invading enemies. But there in Psalm 81 is the Lord speaking, saying, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would quickly subdue their enemies. But we see in 89 a calling, a recalling of God's covenant and a question to God by the psalmist. Verse 39, you have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. Yahweh had brought about this devastation. This collection was probably compiled after Israel was taken into exile. But many of the psalms are from an earlier time. And why were they arranged this way? They were to help Israel trust in God through the path of the exile. These psalms ask some tough questions. How long will this last, and is there any hope? Book 4, we can call that an introspection about the destruction of the temple and the exile. They mature in their, in their growth spiritually. There's hope and trust, and they reaffirm God is still king and judge over all the earth. And then book 5, praise and reflection on the return and the new era. 107 to 145, we could call it consummation. They're back home, returned. And Psalm 107 says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. 
And then there's a climactic conclusion, 146 to 50. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Now this summary I lifted from the gospel in Psalms that I'm going to read. It's a part of Christ in all the scriptures. In our study of the Psalms, we see that the way they were originally used went from use in public worship to private cries for help. They were used as a hymn book, in temple liturgies. They were memorized and used for personal devotion and community recitation. Now, how do we use the Psalms? The risen Jesus said to his disciples that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Luke 24 and 44. Jesus considered the book of Psalms to be ultimately about him. So to read the Psalms in a non-gospel way is to fail to read them the way Jesus himself told us to. How do we read the Psalms in a way that honors Jesus' own words? We do so by understanding that this book of the Bible, like all books of the Bible, play a contributing role in the history of redemption that culminates in Jesus. The Bible is, in essence, a message of what God has done to redeem and restore sinners, and this is done preeminently in the person and work of Christ. Each book of the Bible carries forward that supreme redemptive purpose, a purpose that comes to a climate, a climax in Jesus. Another commentator stresses that as a personal devotion, devotional, they can be legitimate, but it can become self-centered. They're not psychological recipes for healthier living. They're opportunities for you and I to get right one more time the proper relationship between us God's created beings, and God the creator and ruler of the universe. Next week, we're going to go into a little more about these collections, and we're going to look at Psalm 1 and 2. So if you want to give it a a look-see, and we'll continue on next week.